Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audio download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash design recharge. There's over 180 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I'm currently reading, listening, actually. I have two hours and 14 minutes left of the 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. I want to tell you about another way to support the channel and get extra content. This week, I actually produced part two of the Sean Ferguson episode. So that is now available along with some other episodes. So there's a Surge series, there's a Patreon power videos, as well as other content that you can get at that $5 level. And this week on Friday, we're doing a meetup with the patrons and we're going to talk about our 30-day challenge. Some of us are still in it. Some of us have just completed it. And we're going to talk about some of the things that we want to do in the future because we're going to do two more challenges and we're going to decide when those are. Trying to meet four times a year and do three challenges and see kind of what what we did and how it helped our businesses. Um, I want to tell you about my favorite way to build websites is with the Elementor plugin. And that works with almost any theme. I don't want to make a claim that it works with every theme, but it does work with almost any theme. It makes the themes invincible. It's really changed the way that I have been able to design websites. It, it You can get that by going, you can use this affiliate link. I do get a tiny piece of the pie here. It's H. TTP, I don't know why I'm saying that, but bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash D-R Elementor. And it's a capital D, capital R, E-L-E-M-E-N-T-O-R. I think these will, they're all underneath. If you scroll to the bottom. Today, we're going to be talking to Mandy Horton, who's a professor at the University of Central Oklahoma, and I'm excited to introduce her. So let's go to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Design Recharge. Because I say everybody because there's actually people, lots of people in the room, and I'm super thankful that they all came live. You can always come live. All you have to do is go to rechargingyou.com and sign up for the email list, and then you can come live too. And it's at 1.30 Central Time. You can do the math for all the other places that you are. But we've got D. Raj coming in from India. We got Beth Snyder from Kansas. We got a bunch of people from Alabama, Mississippi. Virginia, Western Michigan, um, Taylor, oh, Taylor's at the bottom. She's in Illinois. I always want to say she's in Indiana, but she's not. She's in Illinois. Anyway, so um, Mandy Horton is here from Oklahoma. She teaches at the University of Central Oklahoma, and they have a design degree that is just design. And so they have three Really, you have four design classes uh, that are history of graphic design, and Mandy teaches all of them, right? Well, I teach all of the um, graphic design history and the general design history courses, but there are some interior design history courses that are taught from another faculty member. All right. So, but you are, you have broken up what, what I had was, Phil was one of my teachers, this is the Meg's book, um, his wife, Libby, saw the picture, and the, the new Meg's book is, like, white and beautiful and big, and I can't find it. It must be at home. I like to have multiple copies. But anyway, so we're going to talk about this, um, but we're also going to talk about some other books. And today, because this is a three-part series, today is, you want to tell them what the years we're covering are? Yeah, so History of Graphic Design 1 covers prehistory up to the industrial um, revolution. Okay, so not only is it going to be 
um, some stuff that maybe you learned in art history. Maybe it's a little controversial, um, but maybe not. And then tomorrow, just to kind of give them an overview of the whole week, tomorrow's going to be what years to what year? So tomorrow we'll be covering the Industrial Revolution to 1945. So and when does constructivists come in? Oh, they, they'll be tomorrow. We'll talk about them tomorrow. Okay. Good. I had some um, specific people asking for that. So my friend Shane in Ireland, he was like, I'd like to learn more about that. Okay. <laughs> no, Kent, there is no test on Thursday, but I'm sure she could make one up for you if you'd like. <laughs> All right. So then on Thursday, if we're covering up to the 1940s about mm-hmm. on t- uh, t- uh, Wednesday, then um, <laughs> Taylor said she'll be out sick on Thursday. Um, this is what's the beauty of being live, right? So this is, if you have questions, you can ask, and we're going to have some time here to, to do that. So, um, and day three is from the 1940s to present. Yes. Okay. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? You're a designer, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I am a graphic designer by trade, and I decided to go back and get my MFA um, in design to become a professor. I decided that that was definitely a path I wanted to go down. Why? Well, well, I wanted to have summers off. (laughs) I later found out that you don't don't get summers off. (laughs) Because your friends make you work, right? Yeah, that that plan was thwarted. So, uh, but you know what? It was a, I made the decision and it's actually been a wonderful decision. I love my job. I tell people all the time I have the best job in the whole world. Some people disagree with me because I have to put up with students. Um, But you know what? I love it. Um, So it's not for everybody. If you don't want to put up with students, then uh, definitely not for you. But, um, but I love it. I love going to work every day. Um, I try not to teach in summers anymore because I do like to have um, a little bit of time in between my research projects. Okay, so that is what I love as well, but I end up filling my plate to the brim during the summer that I'm actually more busy in the summer than I am (laughs) in the school year, but um, I I think, so Catherine Moore is here. You know Catherine from CCAC, and so I just wanted you to know Catherine's here. Um, All right, so we do have some professors in the room. We have some people that work at universities, and then we probably have some people who want to know more about design history. Um, how does design history, uh, well, how did you get passionate about t- wanting to sh- teach design history? Um, actually, while I was an undergrad, I um, took a design history course from a professor. His name was um, James Robert Watson. Um, he's, still, he's still around. He, um, he has reti- since retired, um, but you can check him out, Google him. Um, he taught design history at the University of Central Oklahoma, which is not where I got my degree from. I got my degree from Oklahoma State University, but he was the only design history professor around. So he went and taught at different universities. So he would teach design history. So he came to Oklahoma State and taught design history, but he also went to the University of Oklahoma and taught design history there as well. And that class was probably hands down, my favorite class, and had it in the evenings. And I remember walking home, walking back to my apartment, just thinking about all the things that he had told us about that day and just being really inspired to go out and create wonderful design work. And then while, you know, when I was making this decision to go back and get my MFA and become a professor, that was really what I was thinking about is I wanted to have that effect on my students. And that's when I sort of put two and two together that 
yeah, I love design. I love designing, but design history really is my passion. Okay. So we know that normally it's a one class, um, course and you, if, if you have one. Yeah. If one, yeah, I think Carrie and Alan, who are my kids who are here, they didn't have design history. We just sprinkle it in. I think Alma does a much better job sprinkling it in than me. I'm terrible at it. I know I am. I, Hey, look, I'm going to sprinkle some business stuff in there for you, <laughs> but um, probably not enough design history, maybe more current history, I guess. But so how do you think design? So how long did you work as a designer? Um, actually, I have a very, very short period of time. So I worked um, while getting my MFA mm -hmm. um, as a designer. And then very shortly after completing my, my MFA, I, I think it was maybe six or eight months, there was an opening um, at the University of Central Oklahoma where my, my predecessor, um, James Watson, Jim Watson, um, taught. Um, they were expanding their program. Um, they had separated entirely from art. Um, so art in very many universities teaches their, the foundations for design. And in, at UCO, they were splitting from art um, and teaching their own design foundation courses. And part of that was they wanted to emphasize design history as well. So they were creating um, three design histories where there previously had only been one. So uh, just so you know, Will is here too. And Will is going back to school. He's going to RIT in the fall. Okay. And Rhonda Levy's here. Okay. And Rhonda, I believe, aren't And Mason's here. Mason's in Tennessee. No, no, Mason's in Pensacola. I don't know what I'm thinking. Rhonda, I think. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We're going to be focused. I'm going to get it done. Okay. Tell us where you're from when you come in late. But so um, I think that, you know, uh, Will is going back to school. I don't know if he loves design history, but there is a lot of us have, you're still working as a designer. You still have clients as a designer, right? Currently. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. So um, we'll just be encouraging Will for his RIT uh, transition, I guess. All right. So why do you think design history or how does design history play a role in your professional practice, not just your teaching? Well, the, the thing about design history is, um, and I think, I think there's a lot of aspects about it that play a role, um, but design history, if you look at it as the history of visual communication, um, basically having a, a background and an understanding of design history is really creating this sense of visual literacy for you. It mm -hmm. creates um, this dialogue that has been going back, and we'll talk about this a little bit when we get into the, the meat of the, the, the little lecture I have prepared for you today. Um, I mean, it just goes back to, to the dawn of man, and we still build on those items. And so, you know, knowing where some of that comes from, or at least how far maybe it went back, and how it's adopted and adapted through different cultures and different civilizations, um, I think that can have a big impact on your work. But then just knowing and understanding like all of that stuff, it can, it can have an impact on your work. It can have an impact on whether or not if you're planning on using say a color palette, like say you want to use red and black and white. And um, because those are just such strong, powerful colors. Right. Um, but that, that has associations with often with, um, you know, the constructivists and communism. And is that really what you want to be saying for that organization? Mm -hmm. You know, 
knowing where those things come from and what associations that they can have for people, um, that can have a big impact on your work. Absolutely. Okay. I totally agree. And Catherine's just loving your language that you're using because visual literacy, well, I can't even say it in communication class. Rhonda is also a teacher. She's in New York um, teaching, I remembered. Okay. So then uh, why does design history matter to professional designers? I think you kind of gave us a hint there, right? Uh, it really is something because it's psychological that cultural implications of what design, but how could they use design history to enrich their studio practices? Well, you know, we always talk about as design educators um, about the idea and the concept and that the concept is the key and having this wealth of knowledge of the history and the theory and the criticism of design, where it's all come from, came from, um, can help you to build an argument to support your ideas. And, you know, you can have a really good idea, but if you can't talk about it, if you can't explain it and you can't identify, um, it, identify it to your client, um, then it, you might not be able to sell it, even if it is a really good idea. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, Hey, look, I got finished with all my questions today. We broke them into three because we're doing something a little different and Mandy's really going to take us through. But I wanted to just make sure if you are, you have to leave early, all of this stuff is going to be at rechargingyou.com slash 303 because this is episode 303. So if you just go to rechargingyou.com slash 303, we're going to be sharing some um, resources. This video will be there and hopefully nobody will make us take it down because... Um, no, we're not done already, uh, Jason. So it's the quickest design recharge ever. It's <laughs> history. I'm just kidding. So, but you can, I just want you to know that if you're really interested, I just want to say these real quick in the beginning. This is not brought to you by UCO. Lord knows I teach at a university, but we don't have anything like this. So I think that sometimes you just want to do it. So you could actually take, there is history of design, which includes what? Mandy. So history of design is our general history course and it includes, you know, some graphic design history, but also um, architecture and interior design and fashion design, photography, industrial design. Okay. All right. So then that one is available online, but there's also history of graphic design one, which is available online. Now, if you take the course, I'm not sure if they can clip the course or whatever you call when you don't really take, you don't have to take the test. Like, I don't remember what that's called. We can't that do auditing. Auditing. Yeah. We don't have any audits. Oh, everybody's like auditing, auditing. Um, thank you guys. I don't have the great, great <laughs> vocabulary here or it's summer brain, I guess. So can they audit that course? You know, um, that is a good question. I don't know for sure, but I think you can. I think you can. Okay, so if this is so exciting to you today, this course is kind of online. So this is something she usually covers in 16 weeks, not 55 minutes or, or really I'm cutting her down to about uh, 46 minutes. So let's, without further ado, let's get going. And if you have a question, I am going to keep the chat up and I will just interrupt ugh interrupt her. And so I know we got a bunch of people who came in late. I'm really glad to see Dave and uh, mate and Michael. I'm glad to see Mason too. And Jen. So I'm just glad you guys could, could make it. All right. So take it away. Share okay. Okay. So I'm going to start sharing my screen. Um, there we go. Right. You guys can see it. 
Yes. Okay, so this is History of Graphic Design 1, and I like what Diane was calling it, um, the Cliff Notes version. So this is a very much a survey of a class that they survey of Design History 1. Um, so I'm going to go through some of this stuff pretty quickly. I think I have like 52 slides to go through. And you got it. You can do it. But, so I I'm maybe 20 in 20 minutes. You can do 55. <laughs> Right. So I'm, I'm going to, so I'm going to go through it pretty quickly, but I do want to encourage people to ask questions, to interrupt and to say whatever it is comes to mind. As long as we don't go off on too many tangents, then we can maybe stay on topic. Dave Williams is catching it and he's in the UK. So he's been a long time listener and now he just thought, thought this was so good. He thought he'd catch it after work. So oh, thank good, you. Good. All right. Okay. Keep going. So starting with uh, history of graphic design one, um, well, where does design history start? And that is a, that's a big question and it's certainly up for debate. And depending on where you go for university, um, what, if they offer a design history course or not, they may start it in different places. A lot of people start it in the Industrial Revolution. A lot of people start it with the, um, you know, the lithographic poster movements. Um, and, you know, some of them may even start even later. I mean, the term graphic design um, or graphic designer wasn't even coined until 1922 by W.A. Dwiggins. Um, so, I mean, if you started with the term graphic designer, we'd be starting this history in 1922. Um, but if you look at the definition of what a graphic designer is, a lot of people take that a little bit deeper than just someone who makes logos and someone who designs brochures. And for those people, it's usually more about visual communication. And if you look at visual communication, it really um, started as early as cave paintings. Um, this is an image of the Peshmeral Caves. I'm probably pronouncing that completely incorrectly. Um, so this is from the Paleolithic period. And um, it, it's actually argued by Philip Meggs in the Meggs History of Graphic Design book, which is, you know, there's a lot of History of Graphic Design books available now, but that one was really the first one. and. Um, and it's really what a lot of people still turn to. It gets updated pretty frequently, and it's a really, really great text. If you don't have it, I do highly recommend purchasing it. But Philip Meggs makes the, um, the argument that the, the cave paintings were not, you know, the first examples of art history. They are the first examples of visual communication and are therefore graphic design history. And so that's one of the first things I tell my students and I talk to them about it. And I like to tell them um, to, for them to form an opinion about it, for them to inform themselves and think about like, where do you stand on that argument? Do you agree? Do you disagree? And I like, I like to present both sides of a story whenever possible and then let them develop it. I'd love to hear what people thought in the chat. <laughs> so the, I'm going to see if I can figure this out. The, Oops, no, that's not what I wanted to do. Well, I guess that will work. Um, but you'll notice that the handprints above these horses in the Peshmeral Cave mm -hmm. are created using a you know, negative um, form. So th there's an artist illustration or an artist rendering of how that actually happened. You see the, this uh, rendering where this, the cavemen are putting their hands on the wall. Oh, that's a, an inappropriate term. But these men are putting their hand up on the wall and they're blowing pigment across the backs of their hands. And then when they pull their hands away, we have that impression of that negative imprint of the human hand. And so um, I had a, a, a colleague who referred to this as the first airbrush. And I think that that's a, probably a pretty accurate terminology. 
Um, this is where the airbrush came from. So this is also, and how when I argue it, the dawning of the history of illustration as well. Mm. So um, the other thing I want to point out is what else we can learn from early civilizations. Um, a lot of people, when they start taking history of graphic design one, they wonder why we're, we're talking about all this stuff. How does this relate to what, you know, they may have learned about this in an art history class, and how does this relate to what we learn as designers? And so I like to pull some examples from early civilizations where um, they use things like composition and hierarchy to communicate a message. Um, and, and those are things we can learn from these early civilizations. So this is an Akkadian um, example. This is the steel of Naramsin. It's often spelled different ways. I've provided an alternate spelling there for you. And in it, um, Naramsin is the tallest figure there at the top. He's quite a bit larger um, than everyone else, but due to his placement, he's fairly central. He's a lot larger. Um, we can tell he is the most important character in this um, this depiction, right? Yeah. So that's a that's a compositional thing we can learn. He's also yeah. facing in a positive direction. That's true. That's true. I've actually never brought that and up. Everybody see. is except four people. Everybody else is facing positively. Yeah. Yeah. So the hero position, right? You look yeah. to the right is hero left, not hero. <laughs> Keep going. Okay. Okay. So next example is an Egyptian example. This is the palette of Narmer. And same thing. We have um, a strong use of hierarchy. Narmer is in the central panel there and he's the largest figure. But the other thing that uh, the Egyptians started using, which is quite interesting, is registers. So you can see there's this top register, right, where um, the name of Narmer is actually spelled out and his association with the gods. Then there's that middle um, panel where Narmer is. And then the bottom panel. So this all tells stories similar to registers in like a comic book. Yeah. Uh, to help to help tell that story and the, the bottom panel is either his it's open to interpretation sometimes people interpret it as his dead enemies and some people interpret it as his enemies fleeing so um, this was oh go ahead i'm sorry it's, it's about a battle um which unified upper and lower egypt and this is the back side of the panel and we can see there's even more registers here so again the top panel is his name and his support from the gods the second panel is um, you know, them looking over the, the, the battlefield and on the far right of that, we have the enemies that have been slain. They're beheaded and their heads are between their legs. Um, there's a, a couple more registers at the bottom there. So did you know, I have a friend who does archaeology. Um, um, so she hunts for, uh, what do you call it? Vampires. Oh. That's what she says. So that's how they would, they would kill people. And they, uh, and they would bury them with their heads taken off. And that was symbolic because they thought they could, it was like a vampire couldn't be reborn. So they would put their heads. I just, just noticed that. And just from that, anyway. Okay. Kind of. No, I had not heard that, but it, it makes a lot of sense. And so she's like, she does a lot of stuff in the Middle East and then, and where she's doing her digs. Anyway, weird combination there. But, um, uh, Will says, does looking to the right only apply to cultures who read left to right? This is also a left to right culture, I guess, correct? Um, so, well, it kind of depends. I, mostly left to right. 
Um, hieroglyphics were actually written sometimes left to right, top to bottom. And that's one of the reasons they were so hard to um, decipher. So not entirely. Huh. Okay, keep going. Okay, let's see if I can. Oh, I can't seem to advance. What is going on? Okay, let's see if we Maybe can. Maybe click on Zoom again, just to make sure if you, oh. now you advanced. I advanced a little too far. Okay. Maybe there was just a pause in my advancing skills. Um, and then again, if we advance to the Greek cultures, um, this is a, the Diplion crater, and you can see there's registers here as well. And it's, it, if you pay close attention, oh, sorry, it gets a little pixelated when I zoom in. Um, this is actually a story, even though the figures are really simplified based on sort of somewhat geometric forms um, and using repeated patterns and repeated elements, um, it tells a story of a funeral, which I think is fairly clear. I mean, especially, if, I mean, maybe it helps if you know that, um, that this is a funeral pyre they're about to bury or, or, you know, have this funeral, state funeral for a military leader. And it's told in two registers again. The top register is the funeral. The bottom register is like the funeral procession or per military parade, if you will. So the Greeks use that as well. Um, other things that we can learn from, um, from ancient civilizations is I, the idea of controlling the message. As designers, we are constantly trying to control messages as they go out and really, um, you know, have something that is presented really, really clearly to our audiences. And we can actually look to like the Egyptians, for example, for controlling the message. Um, in this statue of Menkare and his queen, um, well, Menkare wanted to be remembered as a very strong and athletic um, leader. So his uh, statuary that was placed in his tomb um, reflected him as very, you know, athletic, very well built. Was he actually? We don't know. Um, but he definitely wanted to be remembered as such. And this also, this, so this has um, ties to their beliefs, um, him as a, the Pharaoh, the God and King being very powerful and, and presenting this very powerful image in life, but also in death. Um, so they had very strong beliefs about the afterlife and, um, you know, of course they would mummify their body because they believed they could reuse their body or they would use their body in the afterlife. But if for some reason that did not work, um, they would have these statues. Um, so they could use the statue instead of the actual physical body. So it was very important for them to maintain this really strong athletic, um, you know, princely kingly um, appearance, I should say. But there was this shift in ideology in Agnaughton's time period, and Agnaughton valued truth over everything else. So during his, um, his reign, people were depicted in statues as they actually were. So he's, you know, he's not as athletic looking, he's got a little bit of a pot belly, he looks, you know, maybe a little bit thinner, has some uh, feminine characteristics as well. Um, but that actually ended with him. When he died, they returned back to the old way of we want to look athletic and strong. So this was a very short time period where truth became more important and more valued um, than this, you know, strong appearance. Mm. Um, but this idea of controlling the message continues on into other cultures. And a lot of 
um, cultures will adopt some of those similar values. So this is a Roman statue of Augustus of Prima Porta, and he actually died in his 70s, and this was commissioned after his death. So, you know, they could have done a, a statue of him, you know, in his 70s, but they chose not to do that. They wanted to, um, you know, convey him how he wanted to be remembered. Um, he wanted to be remembered as um, a strong leader, um, as an authoritative leader. Um, this is an oratorical pose. So he, he's also dressed in military garb. So um, all these things that he wanted to be remembered as are placed into the statue, which we still study and know today. So I guess you could say he is doing a good job of controlling the message from beyond the grave. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the Greeks and the Romans, well, the Romans were really, really good at, let's call this controlling the propaganda or controlling the message propaganda. Um, so they had lots of structures that um, commemorated um, wars and battles. Um, there's the altar of Augustinian peace. There's the um, Arch of Titus and Trajan's column are some of the most, um, you know, probably prominent examples of what we could call, uh, again, propaganda or controlling the message. <clears throat> so this is the Arch of Titus, which is um, a pretty interesting piece. It's, it's half architecture, half sculpture, and inside of it is um, a relief called um, the spoils of Jerusalem. And this is the Romans, they sacked this, um, you know, Jewish um, culture, and they, they took away a lot of their cherished items, the great menorah. I think there's even some people that think that, that this was when the Ark of the Covenant was maybe stolen. I could be making that up entirely. Um, but basically, um, this is what they were conveying to the Roman people. We, we won this this battle, we've carried off their goods, we are in charge now, we're the leaders, we're, you know, we're the great people, and we deserve all of the great things that are coming to Rome. Um, Brian said the second temple destruction was about 70 AD, he questioned, question mark? That sounds about right. Okay. That sounds about, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. And I tend to, you'll notice on some of these images where I'm giving you guys the dates. I sometimes round up or round down just to make it a little easier for people to remember. What's um, CE? CE is common era. Oh. And that's the new, so the, the new so instead way of BC. So there's, there's BCE, which is before the common era. And then there's CE, which is the common era. Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah. So like AD. Gotcha. Um, but you know, this is not necessarily how people would want to be remembered today. Um, you know, it's considered a, you know, bad thing to go into cultures and civilizations and destroy their way of life, um, if you're a good person anyway. So that, that was okay for the Romans, and it's not something we would want to be remembered by today. It's funny, though, because they were, they were seeing themselves in the positive, and they're still facing right. I'm just bringing that up again, yes. people. Facing yes, right. Good, I, good think, I see that in advertising. It'll be like, like an insurance person and they're looking left. I'm like, uh, you know, like they're looking away. They're not even, they can't even look at their type. I'm like, you should at least face your type. I think. Cause it, you know what I mean? Like I hate my, don't call me. Right. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but it is, so maybe it's still Western sort of culture is facing right, but the Egyptians were facing right. 
Well, so then the next thing I want to talk about is making marks. And um, what we have to realize is that it was very, it became very clear very quickly that making marks were um, very valuable because they last longer than the spoken word. I can tell you something and you might remember it for a minute or two days or five years, but when you're gone, it's gone. Um, making marks, they are lasting. You can talk to someone who is not there um, physically, and you can also talk to someone who is not there through time, right? Um, so some of the earliest examples of mark making are pictographs. And those are elementary pictures or sketches that directly represent the item depicted. So in a pictograph, a drawing of an ox is an ox. I have a little example of that here. We have an ox and mountains. And in this drawing, that's what that means. An ox is an ox, the mountains are the mountains. But you can go beyond that. And the next step of that would be an ideograph. And ideographs are pictures or symbols that are meant to convey thoughts or ideas. So in this instance, if you see an ideograph of an ox, it's actually gonna mean perhaps food instead of just an ox. And a great example of an ideograph is the skull and crossbones, which means danger or poison. It conveys more of an idea. It doesn't literally mean a skull and crossbones. Hmm. And then the next generation of that too, and I'm, I'm very much oversimplifying this, um, is the phonogram. And the phonogram is a graphic character or symbol that represents a spoken sound or a combination of letters that can represent a sound. And this is um, where we get the modern alphabet. Uh, we rely on phonograms. And this is just a brief history of the letter A through different um, cultures and civilizations. You can see how this actually evolved from the, the ox head, eventually turned on its side and then got flipped upside down. And that's where the letter, the capital letter A comes from. And then if we go back to um, writing, where does, where does, actual writing come from, and not just symbols and pictograms and ideograms, but um, where do, uh, where does the tradition of writing come from, and where did um, alphabets evolve? Um, cuneiform tablets, they were developed by the Sumerians um, as early as 2800 BCE, and these were um, tablets that were used mostly to conduct business, and so they've actually, a lot of these have lasted over time. There's uh, there's still tons of examples of cuneiform tablets, a lot of them in, in museums, um, and they were mostly used for ledgers and accounting. So a lot of these have actually been um, deciphered. And so ledgers, accounting, and sometimes recipes. I actually heard a story of, um, of a recipe that was translated, and they actually went ahead and like made the recipe, and it still worked. The recipe works and everything. Wow. So, yeah, but these are very mundane, but it also shows how, wh where the need for writing came from. The ri writing really evolved to help us conduct business, hmm. to exchange and sell goods with people. Um, the next example I want to talk about is hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics were a sacred language, and it was limited. Um, only the highest levels of Egyptian society were allowed to to learn and read hieroglyphics. Um, so that would have been the pharaohs and the priests only. Um, but they quickly, the Egyptians quickly realized that um, writing was an essential tool. It was a great tool for communication. So they actually ended up developing three different writing systems. So originally they had the hieroglyphics, 
and then they added the heretic writing system. Um, and that too was um, based on social status. So eventually they had to have another writing system, which is called demotic, um, which was for more everyday people. Hmm. And the Rosetta Stone, which was found by Napoleon's um, troops in Egypt, um, is the key to actually deciphering hieroglyphics. Um, it actually has the same, do you have a question? Yep. I'm going to start okay. raising my hand so I don't interrupt you. So okay. Catherine actually has a question. How do you spell her heretic or what, and then demotic or whatever? It's H-I-E-R-A-T-I-C. And then the demotic is D-O-M, wait, D-E-M-O-T-I-C. Oh, she got that one right. Oh, good. Good job, Catherine. Okay, keep the going. Neat, the neat thing about the Rosetta Stone is it has the exact same inscription on it in three different um, written languages. So the top of it is in um, hieroglyphics, and then the middle portion is in demotic, and then the bottom portion is in um, Greek. And it's wow. this stone tablet, because it has the exact same inscription on it three times, that led them to actually be able to decipher um, hieroglyphics. That's cool. And that's why Rosetta Stone, the term Rosetta Stone is often um, sort of used synonymously with like the key or the code to something, code breaking. Um, and that's why the popular language software Rosetta Stone or where they got their name from. Cool. Um, and if we continue down this path of the development of written languages, um, our next advancement is going to be the Phoenicians. And the Phoenician alphabet is actually very similar to um, than what we would see with the Greeks and the Latins. So like what year are we talking about? Oh, you, you did have to ask me that one. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, Sorry. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay, well, we can look it up, up later. Yeah. I'll look it up in my Meg's book while you do. Okay, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, so the Phoenician alphabet, if you look at the alf, um, the first letter over here on the far right, that's going to eventually become the alpha, um, the letter A. So there's a lot of similarities, but they, some of these are slightly rotated and slightly shifted. And then when the Greeks adopted this from the Phoenicians, they took, even though they had a very different um, language, they basically took those symbols, made some very minor changes, made some additional symbols to accommodate their needs, um, but it, it still works. And this is an example of an early Greek inscription. And I like to show this one in particular because in early Greek, they wrote in a method called bestrophodon, which means as the ox plows. So instead of writing left to right, like we write today and, and like more modern Greek would be written, um, they wrote left to right and right to left and left to right, like an ox would plow a field. Oh, and the wow. way, you, yeah. And the way you know how to read it is if you look closely at these letters, um, when you're supposed to read right to left, the letters are backwards. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's great for dyslexics. <laughs> Maybe. Well, one line. Yeah. I, I mean, but who knows? I wasn't like being funny. I was being honest, serious. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't know. Honestly, no. But it would yeah. be really hard for like me, I think, you know, to be, but 
it's I guess what you're used to, but it's just pushing us language wise of what yeah. we can decipher and read. So maybe we're just doing it the lazy way. That is probably true. I think that a lot of the reasons we've simplified our language as much as we have is because of laziness. And the Phoenicians somewhere between 1000 and 1050 BC. That makes sense. So then the Romans adopted the Greek writing system, but from the Etruscans, they got it from the Etruscans. And um, so this is where our modern day alphabet is based off. It's based off of the Roman Latin alphabet. Um, and this is an example of the Latin alphabet in probably its, its highest, its pinnacle. These are the square um, Roman capitals that they're known for. This is from the base of Trajan's column. Um, and you can see how really, really structured and refined um, this writing style is. But this was really um, sort of like hieroglyphics. It was really reserved for um, special occasions, special uses. And a more day-to-day -day writing system was called uh, rustic or rustica. And it looked a little bit more like this. So it was the same alphabet, you know, not a major change here as, as we saw with the Egyptians, but there was more of a, a higher level style or format and a lower level everyday format. Okay, so let's, if you're ready to move on. Yeah, keep going. Okay, we're going to talk about illuminated manuscripts next. And I think most people, when they hear the term illuminated manuscripts, if they're familiar with that term, they're thinking of the beautiful illustrated books that were produced by the church um, through the medieval era. And so they may not think about things like the Egyptian Book of the Dead being an illuminated manuscript, but it is. Um, these were scrolls, typically, and not the books, um, you know, that were stitched and sewn together, uh, the more modern-day illuminated manuscripts. Um, but they were, in fact, illuminated manuscripts because they were handmade. That's what a manuscript is, or handwritten. Um, and illuminated means it's essentially illustrated. So we have illustrations that accompany text for visual communication, for clarity. Um, not everybody could read the hieroglyphics. Remember, especially hieroglyphics were regulated to just the priests and um, the pharaohs. Um, so everyone else would have to gain an understanding of what was happening in this uh, scroll for, um, by the images because they could not read that sacred writing. And then, of course, I do, if we're going to talk about illuminated manuscripts, I do need to share with you guys some examples of more of the traditional Christian manuscripts. The Book of the Kells um, is a Celtic manuscript that is often considered to be the finest example of illuminated manuscripts in any culture at any time. And part of the reason for this is the, the, um, how extensive these illuminations, these illustrations are but also the quality of the materials they used, the variety of the materials they used. A lot of early manuscripts used black ink, they used red ink, they used brown inks, and maybe shades of, shades of brown and tan, because those were the easiest colors to come by. But if you look closely at this example of the Book of Kells, there's blues and there's greens and there's yellows and purples, and uh, you know probably the purples are really actually blue. And the blue, for example, was um, <clears throat> made from a mineral that came from Afghanistan. So that, I think that shows you how important and how dedicated these monks and these scribes 
were that were creating these illuminated manuscripts, if they were, you know, importing uh, materials to make ink all the way from Afghanistan into, you know, Ireland and Scotland and, and um, the places where these manuscripts were made. I think that shows the importance and the value to them. And sometimes they would use, wouldn't they use gold or something? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So they would use gold leaf. Um, They would use gold ink sometimes. Um, Those are different processes. And um, so sometimes people consider the term illumination not merely to be a reflection of the illustrations that it contains, but illumination from the gold that was often used either Mm -hmm. in the text with gold inks or gold leaf. Um, Sometimes that would be on the covers as well. Go ahead. So Patricia said she saw the Book of Kells in Dublin. How big is this book of, and Patricia lives in Portland. Well, maybe she can tell us. Um, I have not actually seen this in person. I imagine it's, uh, you know, it's a good size, bigger, like a coffee table size book. Um, But maybe she can tell us a little bit better. I'll tell you when she types it in. Okay. Okay, keep going. Okay, so uh, the next Illuminated manuscript I want to share with you is another one I think you may not be aware of, may not have heard of. Um, it's the Codex Mendoza. This is a illuminated manuscript from the Aztec civilization. Wow. And this was made in 1542. And again, it, it's a combination of text and images to relate the story. And in this instance, um, the story, it was examples of Aztec culture and Aztec life. And it was intended um, Um, to be given to the new Spanish ruler, King Charles V of Spain, um, because he had now, they had subjugated um, the Aztecs and the Aztec leaders wanted um, him to understand and value their culture. So they gave him this book in hopes that he would have a better understanding and value of their culture. I don't think it worked. It's funny how the little people don't have pants on and the other people (laughs) have really crazy costumes and shoes. Yeah, I think this is all, um, I don't remember exactly which page I pulled out, um, but I think this is all their ceremonial garb. So he was explaining the different ceremonies that these would be used for and what it all means and what, uh, you know, what part of their beliefs and culture it tied to. And also, I don't know if you guys, I don't know if you can see my mouse. Can you see my mouse? Probably not. But these little squares and like the one over the guy, the first guy on the left, and then there's another. So it's like this patterning. Maybe maybe that had to do with the outfits or something that trimmed or, you know, this, this contrast on the far right. There was like a triangle that's black and a triangle that's white or tan or something. I don't know. I wish I could read this. I think it would be fascinating to read. Yeah. So the the church, especially in Western society, had a lot of control over um, how writing was used and developed. Um, For example, church and the monks, they they made a lot of the books through the medieval era. Um, Towards the later end of the medieval era, you started seeing universities and and they started making their own books as well. But because of that, the church controlled a lot of the um, the content and most of the the books that were being produced were religious in nature. There weren't very many secular books. 
Um, there were some, but, but not very many. Um, so things like ideas for punctuation that came from um, the church and from monks, they actually developed punctuation through the development of music notation. Um, they also developed um, certain ligatures and actually for, for a, they started combining letter forms and it initially was kind of a beautiful thing, but it eventually got out of hand and almost every single word was became like one long ligature and it started to get really hard to read. So that's going to lead to a reform that I'm going to talk about here in a minute. Oh, and uh, Patricia said that it was 10 by 13 and it was spread across um, a long glass case, if she recalls, but she did look okay. it up. She didn't remember that by heart. Yeah. Well, and I think that's about like the format of like a large table, uh, coffee table book, which is kind of how I've always imagined it. Like I said, I've never seen it in person and I don't keep, um, I don't often keep dates and sizes locked into my brain as well as I probably should. Right. Um, but the ampersands, um, that also came from this development, which was originally a ligature of the letters E and T, et, or and. Um, so, and if you look carefully, and I didn't include an example of that, if you look carefully in an ampersand, you can often find that E and the T in the symbol. And you might win um, on like, I don't know, Jeopardy or something like that by knowing that term. <laughs> I, I'm glad you told us. Um, so around the year 800, um, Charlemagne was reigning and uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, and he decided he needed to reform writing practices. This is when sort of that culmination of all of those bad habits that were being developed of creating all of these ligatures and running all the letters together. So he, um, he developed his own um, place for making um, illuminated manuscript, a scriptorium, and he also... Um, refined letters. He, he made, had his own sort of writing style made, and that was known as Caroline Minuscules. And this was actually the earliest example of what we would call lowercase letter forms um, today. And of course, the, the terms lowercase and uppercase they actually come from printing, um, because you kept letters in cases, and the, the majuscules or the uppercases were kept in the uppermost case. And the minuscules or the lowercase letter forms were kept in the lowercase. So we don't actually have that terminology yet. We haven't gotten to the printing press. Um, so, so minuscules, Caroline minuscules, and you can see there's some beautiful letter forms here already being developed. I love those two-story Gs. Mm -hmm. um, so the church ended up creating a lot of um, educational images um, for a very, very long time, especially through the entire, you know, Middle Ages when there wasn't a lot of book production. Book production was very, very slow. Everything had to be done by hand. Um, they were very expensive. So there wasn't, um, there wasn't a lot of, literacy was very, very sparse. Um, so in order to communicate these messages to the people, they would often, um, you know, hire artists and um, sculptors and, and various artisans to create images that the public could see. Um, and they would help tell the story, uh, help tell Bible stories, help tell the story of, of Jesus. And so um, this is an example from the Romanesque era. Um, and this is one of, I think, the first artists named artists that we have. Yes. I have my hand up. They can't see us, but anyway, <laughs> it will be in the recording. Um, the, uh, is this, when does stained glass? Cause that's also, I thought was literacy based. 
Yes, yes. Um, stained glass becomes really prominent in um, the, I think during the Roman, towards the end of the Romanesque era, the beginning, it really becomes predominant in the, um, the Gothic era. So um, yes, they were, it was all of that was intended to help um, convey the stories of the Bible to the people. So this is an example of the Last Judgment. Um, this is in the Cathedral of St. Lozere, and we have um, Jesus in the center. Again, hierarchy is used. He's the largest figure. He's the central figure, and he's surrounded by a mandorla or a body halo that kind of gives him this celestial space, you know, from, from everyone else. And um, the saved are on his right, and the damned are on his left. Um, but there's also this scene where on his left-hand side, um, our right, if we, you know, when we're looking at the right-hand side, of angels and demons weighing souls to determine if they go to hell or not. It's, it's actually pretty dark, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's a, you know, it helps tell the story and it's, it's, it would have been an educational image and hopefully help, um, you know, convey to the masses the message that the church was trying to convey at the time. And, and that's another interesting thing to look at is how the message has changed through the church. Because in the earliest days of the, of the Christian church, um, it was very underground. So they used a lot of hidden symbolism. Um, you know, they, they uh, borrowed images from uh, the Romans and from Roman pantheon to, to try to hide uh, the story of Jesus. Um, but then as it grows and it escalates, then it, they, we get these really dark images and you need to be saved and, and it changes again and it, it shifts throughout time. So it's really interesting to pay attention to those stories. Um, but a lot of this relates to symbolism. And that's another thing that we can learn from, from art history, from design history. Um, how do we use symbolism? How has symbolism been used over time? And how can we incorporate that into our designs? Um, and there's a lot of examples, and I'm not going to get into a lot of these, unfortunately, just because we don't have time. Um, but of course, there's a lot of Greek and Roman symbolism that we still use today. Um, Athena was um, associated with the symbol of the owl, and she was also considered very wise. And we still use that today. I mean, if you go and pick up a graduation card, it's got a hat and owl on it. There you go right there. Um, so, you know, th- those, those connections are still being made and used today. And then I have this example of the Holy Trinity. This is from the Italian Renaissance from Masaccio. And um, the full title there is at the bottom, Holy Trinity with the Virgin, St. John the Baptist, or I'm sorry, St. John the Evangelist and donors. But at the bottom of this scene, and there's a lot of symbolism in this, and I'm not going to get to it, but at the bottom of the scene is a memento mori, a reminder of death. And this became a really prominent symbol that was used throughout the Renaissance. Um, very often it would be even just a, a skull. This is a full skeleton. Um, but memento mores are still very popular today. And it's a, it's a terminology that you would be, as a designer, be expected to understand and know. So it's very important to, to talk about these. And this is also something that is relevant in other cultures. Um, there are a lot of similar ideas and practices in different cultures. For example, um, the Day of the Dead in Mexico honors and celebrates the dead. Um, so definitely something to keep in mind. Um, another piece. I love talking about the Arnolfini wedding portrait when it comes to symbolism. This piece is so, 
just rich with symbolism. And I'm not going to get into all of it today, but if you don't know about the Arnolfini wedding portrait, which is also known as the double wedding or the double portrait, because there's a controversy about whether or not it actually is a wedding. Um, so I like to tell people about that as well. Um, but like the dog in the picture is a symbol of fidelity. Um, the shoes being removed is a symbol of perhaps one of the arguments that it is a, a wedding portrait because this is a religious or it has religious significance. Removing the shoes is something you would do in a holy space. Um, there's lots and lots of symbolism here. Um, and even when I talk about this in class, we don't have time to get into all the symbolism because there's just so much. And then he painted um, itself in the, in the mirror, yes. right? Yes. If there's a mirror on the back wall between the couple and um, in really good examples or, or really good pictures, you can actually zoom in on that and you can see um, John Van Eck um, painted himself. And I think there might be one other person as well um, in the mirror. Um, but there's a lot of, so I definitely teach design history from a, a Western perspective, but I try to bring other cultures in as well. Um, I think that's, there's a lot of value in that. Um, so like in my classes, I'll talk about Buddhist symbolism and Hinduism symbolism. And I talk about Islamic symbolism um, and how, how that is conveyed or translated. Um, and especially when it comes to Islamic, I talk about the idea of aniconism, um, which was basically the, the theory or, or the, the ideology that they were not allowed to convey humans um, or Allah in, in, you know, visual depictions, right? Um, but that, you know, that hindered them in some ways, but it also, because they were, um, they imposed these really strict limitations, that it actually challenged them to come up with creative solutions. So they had some amazing design elements. They use a lot of geometric patterns and a lot of arabesques and floral patterns. And then Calligraphy is often incorporated into Islamic design, um, and, and they're very beautiful solutions. And I like to share that with students, especially early on, because a lot of them are struggling with, um, I have these limitations for this project that I'm working on, and it's so hard because I, I can't work within these limitations. And then if I tell them this story and we look at some of the examples of Islamic design and how beautiful they are, I'm like, yeah, that's a challenge. Accept that challenge. Um, they did, and they created some beautiful, beautiful work. And it's just part of design. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're going to get to the history of printing. I'm going to try to go through this pretty quickly. Um, printing did not start with Gutenberg's press. What? Um, this is the Hittite cylinder seals. The Hittites were a civilization in Babylon um, or Babylonia. Um, and, uh, or Mesopotamia, I'm sorry. It's okay, we don't, I, I don't know the difference. Whatever you tell me. Um, the Babylons were also a Mesopotamian culture. Anyway, um, so they used these, these little um, cylinders and they had carved um, designs on them and then they would roll them in wet clay to create, basically they used this as a trademark, if you will, like a signature or a trademark. And these were very difficult at the time to copy. So it would be, you know, it, it was like a trademark. You, it would be very difficult to copy. And then if you look closely at these um, cylinders, a lot of them have holes in the bottom and that would be so that they could 
um, put like a leather thong on them and then carry them around with them everywhere or wear them around their neck. And it would be something you kept on your item or on your person so that it couldn't be stolen and replicated or um, used for nefarious purposes. Um, but this was an early printing method. Granted, they weren't printing with ink and paper. They were printing on usually wet clay. Because why were they printing on wet clay? Yeah. Um, well, it lasted. You could fire it and it would last forever or for a very long time. I mean, if you look at the cuneiform tablets, that's what, and you know, they were using the resources they had. They didn't have a lot of paper. Um, you know, well, paper was uh, invented much later by the Chinese in particular. Um, it was much more accessible. Um, other early, you know, things that were written on would be papyrus by the Egyptians. That was something that they had pretty readily and handily. Um, then other things they would write on animal skins, parchment, parchment and vellum. Um, but that was pretty expensive. Yeah. Can you still hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, so the, um, the Chinese, they also had some early printing examples and these are called chops. We would think of them as stamps probably. Um, and they would have a, you know, a raised portion that they would ink and then they would press onto the paper and they would, again, they would use this sort of as identification purposes, official seals and things like that. Um, so that's an early printing method. Um, the Chinese also used a lot of woodblock prints. Um, this is the, um, this is an early example of paper money. The Chinese developed paper money pretty early, 1000 CE. So they were one of the first civilizations to be printing paper money and disseminating graphically printed images to the masses. Um, so I think that's pretty exciting. Um, totally. Also in terms of woodblock printing, this is the oldest dated printed piece. This is the Diamond Sutra. And again, this is a scroll. But basically, this long scroll was printed using carved woodblocks. And they had just blocks that they would print the scroll in. This is on uh, teachings of Buddha, Diamond Sutra. Wow. Um, and this is much, much later, but it's probably one of the most memorable examples of Yukioa. So I'm going to show this piece in particular. But the Japanese were also using woodblock printing techniques, and they were really creating some advanced techniques in terms of color um, and their use. And if, if you ever have a chance to go to Yukioa exhibit, highly recommend it because they are phenomenal. But the earliest examples would have just been black and white. They might have been hand tinted. It's, you know, it's going to be later on that they started developing these really colorful um, prints, like the Hokusai's Great Wave that we see here. Um, also, movable type was invented by the Chinese. Uh, these are clay, movable types are not lead that we think of. Um, and it was developed around um, 1041, 1048. Um, it didn't catch on because the Chinese have three to 4,000 characters. So it was really hard to, to use. It was a really difficult format for them. And so it didn't necessarily catch on at that time. Um, and because of that, I think we don't really attribute them to the development of movable type, but they did. They developed movable type. Um, the next development is, of course, the printing press, which we attribute to Gutenberg. Um, and this is an example. So there's actually a controversy here you may not know about. Um, Gutenberg developed the printing press around 1440 
1450. Um, but around the same time, there was a, a man in um, Harlem in the Netherlands, um, Lorenz Janszoon Koster, who also developed a printing press. And so there's this argument about like who actually developed it first, but pretty much in Western society, we've already accepted that Gutenberg did it first, so he gets all the credit. Um, but if you go to this town in, in the Netherlands, there's a, there's a statue for him. He's holding a little piece of metal type in the statue. And basically that statue indicates that he developed the printing press first that makes that argument. Um, and the interesting thing about the printing press is the things that Gutenberg needed, he needed ink, he needed movable type, he needed a press and he needed paper. So movable type that had already been invented by the Chinese, yeah, he refined processes um, and certainly he made them out of metal instead of clay. Yes. How do you spell Coaster's last name? Um, C-O-S-T-E-R. Lorenz, like Lorenz is what it looks like, Lorenz Coaster. Um, anyway, so the ink had been around for a really long time, um, but he had to, he found he had to incorporate oil into the ink so that it would adhere to the metal surface. Um, movable type, again, had already been around. And the printing press, the idea for the printing press, this was not something that he developed all on his own. It came from a wine press. And people had been pressing wine using these giant wooden um, presses for a really long time. Um, and then he needed paper or something to print on. And he, he generally prints it on um, animal skins of parchments and that sort of vellum and that sort of thing. Um, so basically, this is not like this you know, groundbreaking discovery in the sense like that none of these things already existed, but this is how most inventions happen, right? Is you take things that are already around, we already have ink, we already have movable type, we already have these presses and parchment, and then you find a new way to combine them and to develop something new that, that is fantastic. I mean, this changed the way people lived and communicated. Um, so Fred has a question. Sure. Said, wasn't Belgium? Now I'm not really good with my geography. So, wasn't he said he's in Belgium? He said wasn't Belgium really connected to the printing press? Just curious what their relationship was in all this. I actually don't know about Belgium's um, relationship to the printing press at all. And so, if he wanted to tell me Belgian history, and you can add this in to us, Fred. Yeah. Fred's 16 yeah. and he loves design. Mason says wine. That explains why I'm still a print designer. <laughs> okay, keep going. Okay, so um, so the, uh, the development of the printing press led to a greater dissemination of information. It led to things like the Reformation, um, the splitting of churches. And this is an example of a broadside um, that, you know, was um, more on the side of Martin Luther and um, it depicted the Pope and his, um, his allies in, negative, in a negative light. Uh, and again, this is another example of, I really, really wish I could read this because I bet it's, um, it's yeah, it's probably pretty exciting. I think that they call him some not nice names and his, his compatriots not nice names as well. Um, other technologies that we talk about are, you know, we talk about engraving and how that advances. Um, society. Um, but let's talk about typography. This is actually my last subject that I'm going to cover today. So we'll try to go through this pretty quickly. Um, textura. Textura was a, a writing format that was developed by, by scribes, by generally by monks. 
um, and it was developed for ease. So these had very upright forms initially, um, different, um, different areas had different formats and different styles. Some of them would become a little bit more open and a little bit rounder. Those are often, they have different names for these. Um, so like uh, you'll hear the name textura, you'll hear the name black letter, um, because of the black appearance that it gives a page. If it's full of, of black letter type, you'll hear, um, rotunda, um, fracture. Um, so there's a lot of names associated with textura and, um, the different, styles that it can manifest in, but it was predominantly used by scribes and it would have been very, very legible to them at the time. Um, and it's very difficult for us to read because uh, we're not used to this format. And then when Gutenberg invented the printing press, if you want to believe that story, if you want to go with Lawrence Coaster, we can, we can talk about that. Um, he didn't change the way things were written. He, in fact, he was trying to create a printed book that looked like it was handmade. Um, so he very much copied, um, can you see my cat's tail? Yes. <laughs> um, so he, he created a type, typeface that copied the writing of scribes at the time. So um, when Gutenberg started printing and we have these early broadsides, a lot of them use textura or black letter forms. Um, <clears throat> from there, they returned during the Renaissance to more of a Roman style um, format. And so this is the example I'm giving is by Aldous uh, Minutius. And he was very much impressed with Greek uh, writing or the Greek style. And he um, produced a typeface called Bembo, um, along with his type designer, who was Francisco Griffo. Um, and then they also um, collaborated to create the first italics. Um, and the first italics were not intended to you know, complements, um, you know, Roman typefaces like how we use them today. In fact, they were, um, they were used completely independently for small pocket size books. And it was intended to kind of comp compress the type so that they could make books smaller. So they were used entirely on their own, not how we use them today. Um, our next advance. Well, you didn't talk about italics. I did. Oh, did I not? The, that well, was with the, the pocket size books. Because, well, one thing I always say, I was about money because this is me throwing oh. in the business. You, you know this part probably, but they did italics. Italics came to be because they were trying to fit more type on a line so that they could yeah. use less paper and make more money. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I wanted you to tell them. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. Keep sorry. going. <laughs> Um, and then this is one of the first type manuals, um, mm -hmm. Champ Fleury by uh, Geoffrey Torrey. He was French. I, my French is very weak, so I'm probably pronouncing all of this completely incorrectly. But he took these very Renaissance ideals and applied them to typography in this first typographic manual. And there are a couple of other typographic manuals that come out during the history, uh, during History of Graphic Design 1. We're not going to be able to get into all of them, but I wanted you to see he was, he had these really um, elevated ideas about type and how, you know, compared to human anatomy and how everything worked in the natural systems. And it was, it's pretty weird and pretty, it's pretty neat to look at. Those are. Cool. Um, and then we have the first example of a typeface that is created using a grid. Mm. Previously, typefaces were based on the writing of scribes. Um, and of course, this is this still has that basis of what we what has come before, 
Um, but now the letter forms are based off of grids and mathematical proportions and clean geometry and circles. Um, and, and that's the Romain de Roy, the Roman of the king. So this was for official use only. And the neat thing about that is anything the king did, the kings of France, kings and queens of France did, became very much in vogue, very much fashionable. So people started copying this. And so this style of typeface became very, very prevalent. Um, also around this time, um, two Frenchmen, Fournier and Dido, they developed consistent units of measurement and type sizes. So previously, um, uh, type sizes were not consistent from printing house to printing house. Um, and if you went to one and asked for a petite Roman, it might be the equivalent to like an eight point font today. But if you went to a different printing house and asked for the same thing to be printed in a petit Roman, it might be closer to a 10 point or a 12 point font. They, there was no consistency there. So they, these individuals came up with the idea to unify um, and to use uh, units of measurement to define sizes of type instead of just names, which I'm sure we all appreciate today. Um, William Caslon was one of the first big typographers in England, um, and he developed his typeface um, in a roughly 1728. This is a specimen of that, Caslon, which is still accessible in use today. And it was very, very, very popular for a very long time, and it said not necessarily because it was beautiful, but because it was really functional. Mm. Um, Benjamin Franklin came to the United States to learn how to set type and to be a printer, and when he came back to the United States, he brought Caslon back with him, and it was at his recommendation that the Declaration of Independence be set in Caslon. So he brought the typeface Caslon, or he brought the person Caslon? He brought the typeface, I'm so sorry. Okay. <laughs> the type is back with him. Yeah, yeah. Um, other developments when it comes to typography, we start getting to design what much more, more and more elegant typefaces. So John Baskerville designed uh, this typeface in roughly 1772, which again is known as Baskerville today. We still know it and still love it. It had increased thicks and thins, and he had to use. Um, better inks and better paper because the thin lines would sometimes get lost in the printing process. So he refined ink and he refined paper in order to be able to use these delicate forms. And so what we're seeing during this transitional period is, um, you know, those thicks and thins really starting to be pushed. Whereas earlier Roman typefaces would have had very even forms. Um, you wouldn't want to have too many thins. And, and, and actually, as Baskerville and these typefaces also fell out of fashion, eventually people would complain that the thins were too thin and they hurt their eyes. Um, so these go back and forth in popularity. In 1785, Bedoni developed his typeface, which is still, again, widely used today. You see it on a lot of, uh, in a lot of logo designs. Um, again, increasing thick and thin, and here we have a hairline serif. It's really, really delicate and really thin. This is often referred to as the first modern typeface, um, and it's, you know, it's often used today to convey elegance, so a lot of clothing brands use Bedoni. Um, wow, I thought, okay, I got through all of my images, and I think we ran over. I'm so sorry. It's okay. We always run over. <laughs> okay, are you done? Yeah, that's... Well, hit, uh, oh, the <laughs> hit stop screen share.
Okay. Oop. Okay. Yay. Okay, guys. So I won't talk as much, but we do have two questions for tomorrow that I'm going to ask her in the beginning. And, <laughs> um, and then uh, three questions on um, uh, Thursday. So thank you guys for coming. Thank you, Mandy. We can't wait to learn more. I'm sorry I was reading the chat. And I feel really bad because I'm like, hey, you didn't talk about italics. And you're like, yes, I did. You should be listening, right? <laughs> I think you were expecting me to explain it a little bit more in the money-saving sense. And I was talking about it in terms of conserving space for pocket editions. Yeah, but, but yeah, same idea. But it's funny because, you know, um, some kid asked me last year and they were like, oh, so my colleague, Matt, he's like, oh, he's a great illustrator. And Alma, you know, Alma is great lettering and typography. And she's like, what do you do? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe business. I, so I was like, I guess I, but I do really think about the money and I think about how they were cutting corners. And that was really a, um, a huge money saver. And I know yeah. I've taught my kids that. So I think it's, I think it's funny. So well, if you want another money saving, um, <clears throat> Uh, example from history, the Gutenberg Bible, um, also referred to as the 42-line Bible, used 40 lines on the first, I think, nine pages, 41 pages on the 10th page, and then after that, they all used 42 lines, and that was basically to bring the cost down so they could use less paper, so they put more lines on a page to reduce the cost. Mm. Anyway, thank you. All right, so uh, Rhonda says she wants a link, but I don't know what the link is. Um, great review. The everything in the the chat won't be there today, but I do have an intern, and she's um, putting the chats and making the show notes for me. So it's going to be much better to go back and see these. Um, so I don't know what a link you need, Rhonda, but we'll get it for you if you put it. I, so I put down there the, if you want to get the show notes, it again, rechargingyou.com slash 303 and tomorrow will be 304 and then 305. 304 doesn't exist yet. Well, it does now, but it, you know what I mean. Okay. Okay. That's what she was wanting. So I want to make sure that you guys, um, Mandy said it was okay to share her email. Obviously she works at a, a public institution. You could get it anyway, but I'm going to go ahead and give it to you and you're happy to answer questions or Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if at any point in time, this brings up a question, you want to know a little bit more, I'm happy to answer questions. Or if I mention a book or a resource and you want to know more about that, um, feel free to email me and I'm happy to happy to share that with you. And I will try to get links to the books and things like that in the show notes as well. So one of the, I just want you guys to know ways that you can connect with Mandy, which she does often write about design. She also has a beautiful dog as well as her cat. Um, she did not post, but sometimes your dog ends up in your uh, Instagram. So if you go to Instagram.com at unicorn loves trouble, and it, I didn't say her email address. So if you're listening on wherever you get your podcast, A-H-O-R-T-O-N, the number four at uco.edu because University of Central Oklahoma please absolutely if you have a question be sure to email me and so for those of you who um, I know some of you are teachers and you teach this stuff I think Kent teaches design history if you want to connect and share ideas 
back and forth or correct me on any mistakes I might have made, um, feel free to do that as well. Anyway, we'll see you guys tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat place. I don't think that's how that goes, but think it's same bat time. Same bat time, same bat channel. Oh, yeah. Bat channel. That's right. Anyway, well, whatever. I always messing something up. Bat station. That's right. Well, get your so. Oh, bat station. I'll tell you. Uh, anyway, thank you guys for all the new patrons that are um, coming and that have joined. I really, really appreciate it. You can um, sign up to support the show at Patreon.com/slash Diane Gibbs. And if just to remind you, so tomorrow is Design Two. So again, the Cliff Notes version of her Design Two class, which normally takes sixteen weeks, and that's again just remind them who what it's covering, what years. So that will be, we'll cover the Industrial Revolution up to um, 1945. Okay. And then the Thursday is the modern or yeah. more up to today. So we'll cover David Carson and and um, other, anybody from 1946 on, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we will see you guys tomorrow. I just want to tell you all, thank you so much. Please hit like if you're, this is, you're watching this on YouTube, give it a like. Give me a comment underneath. I do answer the comments. Uh, start a question. Let's have a conversation. Hey, I just wanted to tell you thanks for coming to the show today or listening or whatever you're doing, watching right now. Go ahead. If you're on YouTube, hit like. If you're listening through your podcast or MP3 player, um, give it a share. Share it with somebody who you think needs to know. And there will be two other episodes that go with this. This will be a playlist. So you can have the second one and the third one, and they probably will come out really close together. And you can always support the show, even for a dollar, by giving at patreon.com slash Diane Gibbs. And that's D-I-A-N-E-G-I-B-B-S. Just one in in Diane. Anyway, I just wanted to tell you thank you so much for coming. And you can also, just using Audible is another way to support the show. And you can get Audible through this link. You get one free book and a 30-day free trial. It's at audibletrial.com slash design recharge. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoy it. Thanks for the thumbs up and the comment and the share. I really appreciate it. Y'all have a good day. Lord, could I take a little bit more time? There's a wasp out there, so that's why I'm distracted. It's through a glass. It can't get me. I'm safe. Hey, I just wanted to say thanks so much for coming today and watching. Hit like if you're on YouTube, and if you're on Audible, not Audible, blah, blah. What? And how long can I get stuck on here? All these things keep popping up. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Anyway. So I feel like I should say something else. <laughs> you know, I stick my foot in my mouth a lot. And I should really pay attention. <laughs> Man, my bra's been showing the whole time. Anyway. We learned a lot today. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. We learned that owls are a symbol of being wise, and it comes from the god of Athena. I think we learned that today. Did you? 
do you know that design really started back in the cave paintings? I don't even know what else is funny. I don't think anything else is funny. Nothing else has happened. I can't sleep. I'm stressed. I think we have a mouse. I know. And I think it's in the attic. I know it's in the attic. There's poop on the little... We have like one of those things you pull down and you go up the little stairs. There's poop on that. Uh, I, I really don't like mice. And I have a cat. She should be able to catch that sucker. I don't really have any good piece of advice. It's just processing something. I don't know. I feel like it's just a whole bunch of commercials here at the end. Probably not very good commercials either. Support the show at Patreon. <laughs> anyway, that's what it feels like. A little slimy. I think I'm better when... Hmm, maybe somebody else is on here with me. I'm just waiting for it to process. Ten seconds. Anyway, I don't know if I use any of this. I think I know how to stop it. <laughs>